agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love the government of the government love the government. Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University. I'm joined, as usual, by Ken Katkin, a professor at law at Chase Law School in Northern Kentucky. Welcome to the show, Ken. Thanks, Trey. It's great to be back. Well, it's, it is a great day to be back because we get to come back at the exact time uh, that we made some predictions and you made some predictions and, and, and we're going to get to that in a few minutes. Uh, but I think we're going to start the show off this week on many of our listeners have been really obsessed about the forthcoming now fourth came uh, department of justice inspector general report. And this week, the inspector general uh, both gave the report testified testified before the Senate judiciary committee uh, specifically about the FBI's handling of the Russia investigation. Uh, the conclusion of the Inspector General uh, and overall was that the FBI was justified and its actions had no political bias. However, he goes on to say, quote, there was deep lead concerns uh, that so many basic and fundamental errors were made by three separate handpicked investigative teams, end quote. So in other words, there were some problems, but there was no systematic bias. I really think that's kind of a letdown, Ken, for a lot of our conspiracy theorists out there who I think thought this was going to be kind of the beginning of the end for the legacy of Obama. Uh, not that I think anybody who, who was paying close attention thought that that was going to be the case, but um, such is life. Yet now, the madness does not yet end because the U.S. Attorney General uh, Durham is leading a separate review of the FBI. Uh, and and this is what I think is particularly interesting, is questioning uh, the IG report itself. As a matter of fact, Trump has even said, quote, it's far worse than anything I would imagine, end quote. But I'm not really sure what he means by that. So, Ken, I'm going to take it to you. Uh, what do you think about these biggest findings, that there's no political bias, uh, but that we have a FISA warrant set of issues, some significant inaccuracies there, um, that we have a Steele dossier that was close call, but it, it, it fits the bill, uh, and that, that we had FBI agents for and against Trump. Is there any there there other than kind of the headline takeaway, which is there's no political bias? Yeah, I mean, I I, I think that's the, the, the important thing for people who've been paying attention to the the, uh, um, the the Trump investigations. One thing I think is that, um, as far as I know, you know, it's it's unprecedented for anyone to take such a close look at the um, set of events that lead up to the uh, issuing of a FISA warrant. But um, I, I I have to suspect that if you ever applied this kind of microscope to any application for a FISA warrant that's ever been filed, uh, you'd be able to find the kind of small um, uh, improprieties that. Uh, that, that, that the inspector general found uh, in this case. So, you know, definitely, I think the the idea that there was no uh, improper political influence and and no um, improprieties that affected the uh, justification for the warrant. So what are, about are, like are, the are Lindsey Graham uh, point of view where he kind of, well, he doesn't kind of, he comes out and says, well, look, you know, th these emails have been doctored. Is, is that anything worth, uh, worth thinking about? Uh, well, I, I, I guess I don't know enough about, you know, the facts of what Lindsey Graham's talking about there 
that I could weigh in specifically on that. But what I what I would say more generally is the allegations of that type. I think you would find that if you looked. You know, there there have been hundreds or probably thousands of FISA warrants granted. It's an entirely secret proceeding. It's an entirely one sided proceeding, and and nobody ever looks uh, back to find out. You know how accurate the predicate was for these applications, and I think complaints of that nature would probably prove out to be true in the majority, if not the supermajority, of of all uh, FISA warrant applications. So, the, the the without me knowing the particulars of exactly what Lindsey Graham's complaining about, I think that's inherent in the nature of a secret one-sided proceeding that there's um, small amounts of mischief. I mean, it's really inherent in the nature even of more public proceedings. The the very well-known, uh, well-documented idea that in ordinary um, criminal trials, uh, police uh, sometimes try to, um, you know, in- enhance the evidence in small ways to prove out things that they um, believe to be true, or they they testify in ways that uh, make their actions seem a little more justified than were really the case at the time. That's really the the thumb on the scale that law enforcement always gets, and that law enforcement officers are so confident that they will always get that they often feel emboldened to do, you know, those kind of small scale things. And, and so that that's really how I would think about that. So as somebody, you know, obviously, this is your expertise here, Ken. I'm not a lawyer, but one of the, as I thought about, uh, watched the proceedings, one of the questions that kept coming to my mind, and I had as a question for you is, in some ways, this kind of seemed to be less about the particularistic incident, which I think seems to be a pretty big letdown, as we've already said. Uh, on the uh, on on the bias side, but it seemed like a pretty big indictment against just fi- uh, FISA warrants in general. I, I mean, and given what you're saying, it kind of seems that you're agreeing. Is, is this really more? Is this kind of a maybe a better example of why these kinds of secret warrants are not a good idea? Or am I taking this a little bit too far with my you know crazy anarcho ideas? <laughs> I think you could be taking it a little bit too far. What I I mean, you might be right. I don't want to say you're not right. But I would say another way of thinking about it is that we um, have a rhetoric in this country about uh, civil rights and the way we protect civil rights. And then we also maybe have uh, an idea that's reflected in our law that there's um, you know, certain, certain kinds of um, things that we need the government to be able to do to protect us from crime or terrorism or harm or to, or to prosecute criminals. Um, and so there's always this notion of, of balancing. There's balancing of interests. And I think the, the reality is that the rhetoric always pretends that there's more weight being put on the civil rights, civil liberties side of the balance uh, than there actually is. Right. So that we always have a law that weighs very heavily in favor of public safety over individual rights. And that and that often does um, mis- misstate that in the way the public is taught it. And and so the, the people who are part of the system. Um, they know that, and so they 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 bend the truth a little bit as needed, and that's part of the game that everybody understands and that judges understand. It's just the way it's played. It's it's like working the refs in a basketball game or something. And <laughs> and and so so I think I think I think if you think that the way we talk about it publicly is, is actually the right the right approach, then your point would be correct that that you know we we need to recalibrate the practices. With the with the public rhetoric and public descriptions. On the other hand, if you think that the balance has been struck in more or less the right place, and maybe we should bring our maybe what needs to change is the rhetoric, not the practice. Maybe we need to acknowledge um, that a lot of our our system of um, law enforcement, our system of of surveillance, our system of, of warrants is really much more uh, police friendly than we pretend it to be. 
much, much less solicitous of individual rights and individual privacy than we pretend it to be. And we should just be more open about that. You know, maybe 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 the balance has been struck in the right place, but it's just the rhetoric that's that's out of whack. Do you I mean, that that's a really, um, I think, thoughtful way to lay that out. I mean, so what about you, Ken? Do you think the, the rhetoric needs to come into line or do you think that we need to live closer to the rhetoric? Yeah, I don't know. I can't really decide. I mean, I, I think, you know, if you look at the history of um, civil rights uh, abuses, you look at all the FBI files that have been kept on people for, for decades, all the number of, of you know, the, the disclosures by people like Edward Snowden of just how much surveillance is going on, of how many people. Uh, it seems alarming. Um, on the other hand, you know, if you think about things like, uh, you know, you, you, most 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 of our listeners probably and me, you know, I, I give I give my grocery store uh, information about every single purchase that I buy, you know, which they will then sell to telemarketers, you know, so that I can save a few dollars by using a, a Kroger card or something like that. And so if, if you look at the way people are actually willing to sell out a lot of their private information for very small amounts of money, um, you know, maybe people don't really value privacy as much as they say they do. And there are some some public benefits to all the surveillance. Think about things like the. Um, the Boston Marathon bombing, for instance, where, you know, that crime was only solved because all of downtown Boston is on surveillance cameras. Right. And if it wasn't for the case that every movement that every person takes in downtown Boston is being filmed and that film is being stored in law enforcement databases somewhere, that crime couldn't have been solved. So, you know, I think there are benefits and I just I can't really come to an answer. I sort of come to the idea that um, we're living in a world where privacy for various reasons, is becoming increasingly illusory. Um, I think the government um, sometimes um, achieves very good ends through the kind of surveillance that it engages in, and sometimes it, um, it 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 does it for very bad ends. And so I don't I don't it's it's a human problem, and I don't I don't know that there's a simple solution. If only there were simple solutions to all social science issues, we would make this a much shorter podcast, I'm sure. But, you know, you make an excellent point with the Boston bomber uh, and just a kind of a closed thought there on when you're talking about Kroger and others spying on you. I, I don't disagree. As a matter of fact, I think that one of the problems we have is that most people don't recognize the actual trade-offs they're making and they don't really realize the ramifications of the trade-offs they're making. And, and so rather than maybe coming down on a point of view, I would rather suggest that I think it's something that is so opaque to the average voter as to be, I, I don't think we can actually gain any meaningful insight into people's behaviors based on what they do. Cause I don't, I don't think most people realize what the Kroger card's doing or what, having a Gmail account with Google does right. in a way that makes them informed, uh, despite potentially having signed and or clicked on a bunch of jargon that happened to pop up for 0.5 seconds in front of their face. But uh, <laughs> I think you're right. But I think there's it's it's both things are true, right? I think it's what you said is absolutely the factual truth. But I also think it's the case that let's say you told people and you actually had a verbal conversation with them and made them understand it. You know, when you sign up for this Kroger card, you're going to wind up saving about 10%. But the cost of that is Kroger's going to know everything that you bought. They're going to use that to try to market stuff to you. They're going to sell that information to other people who are going to try to market stuff to you. Is that still okay to save the 10%? Uh, I actually think most people would say yes. I don't think they'd say no. So I think even if they were more fully informed, I think they don't care that much and they, and they want to save the money. 
and they think it's worth it. Yeah. <laughs> I think sometimes we end up agreeing too much, Ken, because I, yeah. I agree. Uh, you know, one of the things recently, my uh, my wife and I, we put in a a new dimmer switch. And so because I'm a, a, a geek, we put in a, a smart dimmer switch. And it was one of the big deals for me was I wanted to make sure that there was no data that went anywhere other than in my home network. I didn't want that to go to any companies. That was a big selling point for me but when i, I look for that that is hard to do <laughs> there are not many uh options for that and and you're right because as a matter of fact as i was looking through all these things i was at a best buy and i, I think the employee was kind of tired with me uh having coming in a few times and his basic takeaway was look just give up your data and stop bothering this aisle you know <laughs> but be that as it may uh, why don't we turn to our second story, Ken, which is the Judiciary Committee's debate, historic debate, and now passing a positive pass on the two articles of impeachment to the full House. Uh, this week, the House Judiciary Committee, uh, on Friday, as a matter of fact, along partisan lines, voted to forward the full two articles of impeachment. And the first article is about the abuse of power. Specifically, Article 1 states that Trump, quote, solicited the interference of a foreign government, the Ukraine, in the 2020 United States presidential election to benefit his reelection and harm the election prospects of his political opponent, end quote. Further, it argues that he engaged in this behavior both directly and indirectly. Article 2 was obstruction of Congress, specifically that President Trump has defied congressional subpoenas. It states that he, quote, without lawful cause or excuse, directed executive branch agencies, offices and officials not to comply with those horse house subpoenas, end quote. So these two articles make it likely that about a week from now, as predicted by the forward looking Ken, uh, <laughs> that President Donald Trump will be the third president to be impeached. The first two, of course, being Andrew Johnson in 1868 and Bill Clinton in 1998. So even with all of this, it is likely to end just like in the first two with an acquittal. Mitch McConnell has already announced on Thursday that, quote, there is no chance the president is going to be removed from office, end quote. So I want to start because I've got a lot of questions and things here, Kim, but I want to start with you were right. I mean, and I, <laughs> I think the timing, yeah, yeah, the timing, right? We get, yeah. we get some right there. Yep. So I don't think that part is surprising. Uh, are you surprised that we just have these two articles? Are you, is there anything in the actual articles that is, that is surprising or unique to you? Why don't we start there? No, I'm, you know, I'm not surprised that there's only two articles, although I also wouldn't have been surprised if there were more. I think that the the the, the balancing act that the House Democrats had to had to play was um, on the one hand, I think they could have had more. But on the other hand, you know, there's a benefit to just getting this ball rolling. And that was really what led me to make my prediction a few months ago about the timing. I thought, you know, the, the, the more the more they keep investigating and keep trying to come up with more proof of more violations, the, the longer things take, people lose interest, people's attention wanders. It actually starts to look as though they must not have found any smoking guns yet because they're still looking. You know, and so I think at a certain point, if they can prove out some crimes, it's just time to, 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 to go. Um, and so I, I think it's not a bad decision. I also think it doesn't um, it, it doesn't preclude them 
from discussing some of the uncharged conduct, uh, because some of the uncharged conduct does relate to the charged conduct. So, for instance, there's nothing about um, the the there's nothing about the Russia conspiracy or about the obstruction of Robert Mueller or anything like that uh, in the articles of impeachment. But I think when you're um, when they start explaining the Ukraine conspiracy, um, the Ukraine conspiracy does relate to the to the Russia involvement. Uh, you know, it's it's a I think the the whole notion of the Ukraine conspiracy relates to the idea that um, Giuliani was over there trying to um, basically plant evidence or, 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 or fabricate evidence for the, the Putin theory that it was um, Ukraine rather than Russia that interfered in the 2016 election. So I think that's all part of the, the Putin-Russia conspiracy. And that may well come out in the trial. Now, uh, as you pointed out, McConnell um, seems determined to move the trial quickly, and there may not be a lot of opportunities for all this stuff to come out. But I think the way that these articles that were voted um, can be discussed in the presentation in the Senate trial um, can include uh, some of the some of the um, other other criminal conduct that wasn't charged out. Now, another point that I've been pondering is, is it seems like to me, at least from a rhetoric point of view, that Trump wants, ironically, a long Senate trial, right? He's looking for something extended, I, I think, is maybe He's hoping maybe to boomerang this back around at yeah. Democrats in the in the Senate. And I think uh, Mitch McConnell, probably a lot more pragmatically, is suggesting this needs to be short, sweet and get it out of everybody's attention span a little bit more like it was um, uh, with Clinton. So you know, I've been I've been trying to make my own prediction on that one. Ken, do you have any thoughts about how this is clearly? This week, we're going to get a vote. It's going to at least happen before yeah. Christmas. This is going to move forward. So the only real question now is, how does the Senate handle it? Right. You and I talked about that uh, three weeks ago. And Indeed. In fact, we, yeah, we both anticipated the, the dichotomy between how Trump would want to handle it and how McConnell would want to handle it. And it's, it seems to be proved out. Um, I think McConnell is going to end up prevailing. But I think the way McConnell is going to end up prevailing is by never acknowledging that there's even the slightest bit of disagreement between him and Trump. I think he's going to keep saying Trump is driving this ship and, you know, whatever Trump wants to do, that's what we're going to do. And meanwhile, McConnell's going to actually do what he wants to do and not what Trump wants to do. And uh, um, because it, it, it just it's just too it, it's too harmful. I think there's too much potential downside for Senate Republicans. Um, Senate, Senate Republicans all have to run on statewide uh, in statewide elections. We're coming into an election where um, there's there's many more Republican incumbents than than Democratic incumbents uh, up for re-election. So the Republicans are really the ones who have more to lose. Um, there's at least three uh, Senate Republicans um, in states that uh, favor impeachment, I think, and removal. Uh, that would be um, uh, Colorado and Maine. And well, I don't know about Alaska, but I think Murkowski's pretty independent. And then Romney's pretty independent, too. So I think there's um, there's a lot of reasons, I think, that the Republican Senate's interest is in just making this go away and that a lot of uh, uh, Hunter Biden conspiracy nonsense is going to play to Trump's base, but isn't necessarily going to play to the voters that um, Senate Republicans in purple states are worried about. So I, I do think McConnell's going to manage to keep it under control. I also think an ace in the hole that McConnell has is um, I think Chief Justice Roberts is very much going to have the instinct and the habits of mind to want to keep everything under control and not let it turn into a circus. And so it'll be uh, Chief Justice Roberts on the front line that's making all the calls. It'll be up to the Senate to whether they want to vote to overrule Chief Justice Roberts's um, 
uh, calls about how to, his, his procedural rulings. But I, I don't think McConnell's going to encourage the Senate Republicans very much to overrule Chief Justice Roberts' procedural rulings. So I think that'll keep things streamlined. Now, on to this, one of the points you were making there about states and, and how that's going to help uh, uh, McConnell. And it also is, obviously plays in as you're thinking about uh, election in 2020 here. Uh, the, there's currently three states that fell for Trump that support very narrowly, but they do in fact support impeachment. And that was Florida, Pennsylvania, and Michigan, uh, mm-hmm. all of which, all three of which Trump is going to need to, to win reelection. Uh, and then there's two who were won by Clinton, but uh, oppose, and that's, um, New Hampshire and Maine, which obviously aren't, aren't putting a lot of electoral college votes into play there. One of the things that I did this week, Ken, as I did this, maybe I was doing too much uh, homework on this particular issue, or maybe it was I was avoiding having to grade additional student papers. There's no telling. It was finals week. <laughs> um, students, I, I, I love you all dearly, but uh, sometimes. <clears throat> anyway, uh, but <laughs> off of that note, I actually went back and I did a little bit of research to compare uh, Clinton and Trump, both the articles of impeachment uh, and what a lot of sitting House members had to say uh, about both. Uh, so listeners, here you go. A little bit of a, of a, a modern history. Uh, Clinton's articles of impeachment, they are huge and contain indexes. And I don't think any average human being has ever read all of it, except now maybe me. Um and he had four. He had uh, grand jury, perjury, perjury in a civil case, obstruction of justice, and abuse of power, which is interesting in and of itself. The other thing that was interesting is, is that you actually have 41 sitting members of the Democratic Party uh, who voted against all four articles against Clinton. Uh, and now six of the uh, six of uh, former uh, House members who all voted against it, who are now actually senators. Uh, and so, Ken, here's the thing that kind of strikes me as I, as I go back through the through the record, and that is is that on some very similar kinds of charges on some of them, uh, Democrats who were in the House now very suddenly care about presidential power and about um, you know obstruction of justice, and Republicans uh, who did now don't, and they've just flipped. So convince me, I, I want convincing on this one, convince me that both these parties are just a little bit below contempt on the issue of impeachment and that really the impeachment process is an ineffectual, broken one and that really all that we have in these kinds of instances is primarily just parties flipping because it's politically expedient, has absolutely nothing to do with the articles of impeachment themselves in any of these cases. Am I wrong? Convince me I'm wrong. Okay, well, I'm, I'm not going to disagree about impeachment being an ineffectual process. It, it, it isn't it's never removed a president. It's not going to remove this president. Um, it did. It did cause uh, Nixon to resign. And uh, actually, he's the so Trump well, will the be the threat of it. The threat and Trump will be the fourth one who um, the House Judiciary Committee vote articles of impeachment against because they did do that against Nixon. That's but, true. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Never made it to the full floor. Um, but the, the on the other stuff, I don't I, I actually um, I'll try to convince you you're wrong. Uh, uh, I think that the the cases are distinguishable enough from each other that I think the Democratic position in each was justified. Um, so I think the Democrats were right uh, to think that Clinton shouldn't be impeached. And I think they're right to think that Trump should be impeached. And I think the reason that I don't see the cases as similar 
even granting to you, as I will, that Clinton almost certainly committed perjury, which is a felony, which is a crime, um, uh, and which relates in some ways to obstructing justice. I, I'm not going to argue against you on any of that. Um, but what I think the the, the key distinction is, uh, and this really, I think, was most expressed by those Democrats who are trying to force a vote for censure as opposed to removal, um, is the idea that the concept of high crimes and misdemeanors um, includes a concept that there may be low crimes, which are crimes but not impeachable ones, and versus high crimes, which are ones that a president needs to be removed for, and that the chief distinction would be whether somebody used the powers of the office of the presidency um, in the commission of the crime, right? And so that that Clinton, you know, his perjury that he committed in a civil deposition when he was the defendant in a civil lawsuit was something that other defendants in other civil lawsuits could commit. Um, it had nothing to do with his um, the powers that are vested in him as president. It's crime, but it's not an abuse of the presidential powers or office. Um, whereas Trump's crimes, and I'm going to you know say I haven't heard enough people talking about the word extortion, but he did try to extort the president of Ukraine. Extortion is a federal felony, and the means that he used to carry out that extortion was to threaten to withhold uh, military aid, which he only had the ability to withhold because he's president of the United States. And it was unlawful for him to withhold that. Congress had already authorized it. And in fact, the, the statute included a, a part where the administration had to vet it before it was released. And his defense department had already vetted it and said it should be released. So so I think the, the abuse of the power that was vested in him as president to release that money and the, and the use of that power, uh, that, that abusing that power as part of the criminal extortion scheme seems to me to be uh, something that deserves impeachment and removal. It's a bona fide high crime. And whereas I don't think, I think Clinton did commit a crime, but I don't think it was a bona fide high crime in that sense. So effectively, the, the bar for you is that uh, one must use the powers vested in that office in the carrying out of the crime to meet the level of high crime. Yeah, that's exactly a perfect statement of what I'm what my argument is. Okay. Well, I hear you. Yeah, I I hear <laughs> <laughs> I have a hard time articulating this because it just makes I'm a man without a land. Uh <laughs> and, and and that is that I I think that's a I think that is a cogent argument. Uh and but it is a I think it is a sign that we have particularly low standards for our contemporary presidents that our our conversations have to center around well how bad were their crimes yes <laughs> I, it, it is a um <sighs> well but remember the the framers didn't want impeachment to be a, a purely um uh, purely political or partisan exercise. That's why they gave us the two-thirds uh, vote rule. Right. Right. So, so, so there, there, there does have to be a, a connection to a crime, but I think it really has to be both. That it's both a legal and a political undertaking. So the, the, the legal undertaking is that it never should be done if there's not actually a crime. Um, the, the political undertaking is that even if there's a crime, there has to be some kind of judgment made about whether it's a high crime. And so. I was just offering one possible test of how I would make that judgment. I think there's it's a cogent one. Other it's a cogent one, Ken. I, I don't disagree. And, and I, I mean, here, this is a footnote on this story before we move forward. I mean, this week it kind of got buried. I don't know if you noticed that, uh, but the president admitted in court uh, as part of a lawsuit settlement uh, 
uh, that he misused funds raised by the Donald Trump Foundation to promote his presidential bid and to pay his business debts. And it is um, that kind of I'm just kind of. Well, you know what I'll say? Let me toss him a bone, though, because under my test uh, that 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 I think the fraud there might be a felony, but I wouldn't think that that's actually impeachable. So that that's actually the kind of crime where I would say that's actually a low crime that he's he's just, you know, swindling his donors out of their money while he's a <laughs> candidate. Um, but he's but it's not an abuse of the office while he's a, uh, the president. So uh, the powers vested in the office. So that, that actually, I think, would give me an example. I think Trump has done thing, crimes that are impeachable and crimes that are not impeachable. Um, and uh, uh, I think he was maybe um, still running Trump. You know, no, he wasn't still running Trump. No, University when he was president. No. But, but but even if he was, I would say that's not an impeachable uh, offense. Um, because again, it doesn't really involve an abuse of the office. On the one front, you've uh, made me feel a little bit better, Ken. Uh, you know, we have this kind of legal argument. On the other, I still feel a little bit dirty. So <laughs> there we are. So why don't we move forward to our third story, um, which is the USMCA? And so here's a switch. We can talk about something a little different. Yeah. Both Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi agreed on something this week, and that is the United States Mexico Canada Agreement. And both of them were very clear on this is better than its predecessor, NAFTA. So why both Pelosi and Trump? What's what's so great about this? Really, the USMCA and NAFTA are very similar, but there's kind of four major differences as you take a look at the the, the texts of the deal. Um, the USMCA requires 75% of a vehicle parts to be made in one of the three countries in order to be royalty free from tariffs. Uh, that's up from NAFTA, which added about 62.5%. Uh, two, and this is a big one that cuts across party divisions. Uh, there's now a labor law provision inside the agreement, which was not present in NAFTA. Uh, specifically, this is targeting Mexico. Uh, and labor standards, and it has been roundly backed and supported as a victory by the AFL-CIO. Uh, third, agricultural products will remain at those 0% tariffs, uh, just like under NAFTA. Uh, but now that includes dairy, uh, poultry, and eggs, and for the first time ever, even a limited amount of sugar. And fourth, bringing things up into the date, we were talking a little bit about uh, privacy in the digital world. There were some digital updates made from NAFTA, mainly about how and where data has to be stored, or in this case, specifically not requiring that data has to be stored inside of certain countries. Otherwise, this looks a whole lot like NAFTA, but everybody's really excited. So Ken, is th- this is, uh, you know, Trump loves it. Pelosi loves it. Everybody seems to like it. I- is this a win? Do you think that, uh, that did Donald Trump actually make a deal? Well, you know, the problem is you said everybody, but you, you actually left out Mitch McConnell. And uh, I, I don't think the Senate Republicans like it enough to actually take it up. So we'll, you don't we'll think see. they're going to pass it. No, I don't think they're going to pass it. Um, I don't think they're going to speak against it. I think they're just going to let it die. Um, and uh, I did hear um, on local radio here in, in the Cincinnati area in northern Kentucky, where I teach, I heard Congressman Thomas Massey, um, who's in the House, um, but he's a House Republican. And I think, you know, he's probably a little more libertarian than um the median house republican but he uh um he was very against it and i you know it's going to pass the house of course but i think uh so what's his argument against it what what was massey's argument against Mm -hmm. it um well uh, largely the 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 um the 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 things that you mentioned that massey was not in favor of the increased environmental regulation the increased labor regulation 
um, or even the um, uh, increased uh, uh, quotas for domestic production within the three countries that he thought all of that was more regulatory than NAFTA. Um, and he doesn't he he's he's libertarian or positions himself libertarian and, and deregulatory. So that was his basic argument. And I think I think, you know, really um, the way I look at USMCA and I'm for it, and I, I hope it does become law. Uh, but I, I think it's like taking NAFTA, turning to the AFL-CIO and to the Sierra Club and saying, you can each make a tweak or two. And then they do. And then that's what it is. And so to me, that's that's fine. Those are positive tweaks. But I think from a from a from a from a, a lot of the perspective of a lot of Republicans, those tweaks might not be positive tweaks. And I think um, there's not much that the House Republicans can do about it because they really have no way to stop passing the House. Um but I think Trump, a lot of times, the way he operates, uh, you know, he wants to change the conversation publicly. Here, if he did a deal with Pelosi and Schumer, you know, he could announce that there's a deal, make that announcement, create the sense that, um, you know, this is a done deal. Um, but I, you know, McConnell has pointedly not been part of any of these announcements or conversations, and I think he said that he had some qualms about it and that his members would need to study it a lot. And you know, for him, that's I think you know a way of saying he's he's still going to kill it. So, but I mean, at this juncture, that means killing NAFTA effectively, though. Well, uh, if it doesn't get replaced, as I understand it, I mean, it, we can't fall back into NAFTA. NAFTA is still the law today. I don't know that it has an expiration date. I thought, man, that, I see there, I'm going to have to we have my ignorance my, on that one. I don't know if it yeah, has. I don't think it does. I mean, we, we um, yeah, we could, we, we I, I'd have to double check that too, but I think we talked about this once before that. People think that um, NAFTA is a treaty, um, and it has the word agreement in it, which sounds like a treaty. North it's American not, it's not agreement. a treaty, but, technically. But it's an, it's, yeah, it's an ordinary statute. It, it, it was passed um, at a time when, um, in the 90s, when Clinton was able to get majorities in the House and the Senate to pass it as a statute, but he never could have got the two-thirds vote in the Senate to ratify it as a treaty. Ironically, so, because of his own party in that era. Because of his own party, yeah. He had yeah. more Republican votes than Democratic votes in, in both. And uh but he, um, yeah, so it, it, it's just an ordinary statute of the United States. Um, this process of amending it is just the ordinary statutory process. And I, I don't I don't think it I don't think it expires if they don't amend it. I think there is already a, a ratified agreement with Canada and Mexico. Um, I mean, that's the, the, the presidents of each country have ratified it, but they have to take it back to their legislatures. They've all done that. Um, I, I know Trudeau introduced implementing legislation in Canada uh, uh, um, over, I think, over the summer. I don't actually know what's going on with it in Mexico, but I, I don't think the U.S. domestic law will change unless unless um, Congress actually passes something. Yeah, see, I think that would be a big mistake from McConnell, to be real honest. I uh, that that's an interesting point of view. I mean, I knew it had some roadblocks in the Senate, but I, I didn't think that they would end up not passing it. I mean, but, I mean, I could be wrong, but you think it'll be a political mistake or a policy mistake or both? Both. Both. Uh, yeah. I think specifically the problem is is that uh, you leave out enough people who would get included in the the lower tariff process who are going to come after you in the elections uh, a little bit needlessly, and you get a you get a potential win from some folks who you don't normally have in your side of the camp, uh, labor in this case. Uh, so, a I think it's always better to include me. You know, this is my libertarian side yeah. coming out. We get more things included at a lower or non-existent tariff rate, which is, I think is a win. And mm -hmm. then likewise, we actually get some labor provisions in there 
And, you know, even as even as a libertarian, I don't see that as a negative one when you're dealing with. And we've talked about this in earlier shows, too, uh, with a country like uh, Mexico. And so I I just don't see the downside other than I recognize there are some pieces of they didn't like. But I thought that could get worked out in the Senate. So, hey, look at this. We've we've, we've had one where we were making different predictions. I, I think yeah, it'll be yeah. close, but I think that this I think the Senate will have enough votes between Republicans and Democrats to overcome the Republicans who are going to say no. Yeah. And you think that number, you think it needs, you think it needs uh 51 or you think it needs 60? You think McConnell's going to try to stop it from coming for a vote? I see. I don't think that he would go so far as to make it have to require 60. Ergo, I think we just need to get 51. Yeah. It might get 51 if he lets it come up, but if he really wants to stop it, I, I think he probably could. And I was, by the way, I was just looking while we were talking about what those labor protections are. So as you noted, the, the main one is that, um, Mexico has to pass something like the National Labor Relations Act so that it becomes much easier for workers in Mexico to unionize. But that would drive up wages here as well. And the other one is um, that there's a a minimum wage in the um, automobile industry of $16 an hour in all countries. Um, So that that could also pick up uh, push up wages in Mexico, which could push them up a little higher here, I suppose. Or at least stabilize them, I think, is is more realistic. But Yeah, yeah. Well, on that, so we there. See now, once again, unlike the other politics guys, we are making predictions that you can test. People. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I'm calling you all out. No, uh, no. But in all honesty, let's move on to our next story, which is Trump's executive order. Uh, and in short, this is kind of a this is a tricky one. Uh, is the idea of being Jewish a nationality? or not. Uh, And the goal of the executive order was to prevent schools, specifically looking at universities, from allowing uh, anti-Semitic protests or what could be considered anti-Semitic protests from receiving federal funding. Uh, And so at issue is Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which bans discrimination in programs for receiving federal aid on the basis of race, color, or national origin. Now, importantly, it does not include religion. Now, it is possible to discriminate in religion. However, uh, religion has often been tied into the Civil Rights Act uh, when it's been mixed with a person's actual or perceived uh, uh, citizenship origin. In other words, if your religious identity is so close to your idea of national origin, uh, then in that case, it would actually fall under potentially the Civil Rights Act, or at least that's historically how it's happened. Uh, now here, though, I think a lot of the um, uh, the potential anti fervor has been around the idea that really came from Trump Jr. that anti Zionism is also, in fact, anti Semitism. At least that's been my reading on this, Ken. And it's also interesting to see that the responses to the executive order have been wildly different. The Anti Defamation League is uh, large support, along with the American Jew- uh, Jewish Committee, which has been a big support. Uh, but many others are against it. So, Ken, what do you think about this? Uh, especially since I know this is tying into the legal aspect again. We're thinking about Title VI. Yeah, I I don't I don't like it. Um, I don't like a lot of things about this executive order. Uh, I, I first of all, one you already mentioned. I don't like um, conflating. Uh, um, zionism with judaism so if there's um if, if and again that's to be fair yeah. came from trump jr's defense of the executive order just so that we're being clear 
Right, but a lot of the order itself is aimed at the uh, uh, BDS movement, the yes, boy, boy, yes. boy, boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. So that's a movement that um, criticizes the nation of Israel for policies that they have towards the um, Palestinians, Palestinians in, in occupied territories. And the idea that a, a American students or professors can't criticize a foreign government um, for its policies seems to me very problematic under under our First Amendment. And the idea of um, equating criticism of a foreign government's policies um, with racism um, seems to me, again, um, you know, unfair and, uh, uh, you know, some, somewhat dangerous and certainly designed to stifle uh, legitimate forms of debate. Um, I also think some other problems I have with the order. First of all, I, I don't think it benefits um, Jewish people to be seen as um, getting getting special protections against uh, against criticism um, and being able to stifle uh, other people's free speech. Um, I, I think that's not a, a position that any group especially wants to be in, um, and it, it's not going to ultimately be beneficial. Uh, and finally, I don't I, I think it buys into some anti-Semitic stereotypes to reclassify Jews as a race. I mean, that's really what Hitler classified right. uh, Jews as. Right. And that's sort of underpinning. And that has really divided, it seems like, the response to the executive order between people who are very, again, from uh, uh, from specifically Jewish quarters, from being for it, like uh, the American Jewish Committee, uh, and then others who see this as being, you know, kind of uh, Nazi-esque. Yeah, because it, because it does, um, I mean, Trump is, in other contexts, not just in this executive order, you know, he's called uh, some American Jews... Uh, dis disloyal because they might vote Democrat, even though he moved the embassy in Israel to Jerusalem. Right. So who is he saying they're being disloyal to? You know, not not just I mean, disloyal to Israel seems to be the implication of that, as if American Jews are supposed to be loyal to Israel rather than loyal to um, uh, America. Right. So there's this kind of notion of thinking about, well, Jews are um, foreigners They're uh, They have a national origin that's really in Israel, not in America. They rightly should be loyal to um, uh, Israel. And I think that's really, you know, I would say anti-Semitic and racist um, uh, under un underpinning uh, of, of all this kind of thinking. And, and so the, the order sort of formally reclassifies Jews as a as a, a racial group and, in fact, as a, 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 a racial group based on foreign national origin, um, which means which could sort of signify, you know, not completely American. Do you think that the reason that it has the support that it does uh, from the quarters that it does is that is specifically the promotion of Zionism? You know, I yeah, I don't know exactly about all the quarters. I my sense is that um, pro pro Israel uh, right wing American Jews are most likely are the most likely Jewish people to be supporting the order. But I you mentioned that the ADL also supports it, and I don't I don't think of them as as, as especially right-wing mm -mm. think of them as kind of nonpartisan. so i don't know i mean I, I guess maybe some members of the jewish community have been disturbed by um uh anti-semitic uh, uh incidents and rhetoric around the country you know we we had the spectacle in charlottesville virginia a little more than a year ago of of all the people with tiki torches marching around yelling and jews will not replace us um we had a, an anti-semitic uh shooting at a, at a at a kosher grocery store in Jersey City uh, just yesterday or the day before, and one in Pittsburgh at a synagogue not long ago. So I, I think maybe some American Jews have a sense of um, uh, a danger that needs to be addressed. 
but I, I really don't personally think that uh, the right way to address it is by trying to um, classify Jews as a, a, a racial group of foreigners and uh, demanding uh, special protections to uh, censor uh, other people's uh, speech, particularly speech about uh, a foreign government's policies. I, I just can't see that that could possibly be helpful, um, even no matter what um, real dangers are out there. Well, I don't have much to add on to that, Ken. So I say that we'll probably kind of leave that one behind, see what happens and move to a topic that always seems to pick up. I think maybe we end up with the weeks where there's things happening in the United Kingdom. And so I wanted our last story to be the election in the United Kingdom, because Friday, the polls come back. And so if we can move away from American politics just a little bit, head back across the pond and talk a little bit about uh, Boris Johnson's Conservative Party winning the largest majority in the British Parliament since Margaret Thatcher. Conservatives picked up 364 seats and Labour, the opposition party, a mere 203. Uh, There's still one seat outstanding at the time of this recording. Uh, but that's not going to be really much anywhere here or there. Johnson, I think, rightfully sees this as a mandate on Brexit. Not only that, Jeremy Corbyn is stepping down. The Lib Dems had a horrid showing. All in all, it looks like that come January 31, Britain will no longer be part of the European Union. It also probably means uh, that the idea that progressives, uh, specifically uh, labor socialists, uh, we're going to be able to push forward on other issues. Uh, not only didn't help, but was harmful. And that the votes on Brexit. So, Ken, is labor too far left? Is this a sign? I, I know a lot of people across the pond saying this is a sign of things in the United States as well. What do you think about the Boris Johnson win? And uh, is this is this the real Brexit now? You know, I, I uh, yeah, I, I think this is the real Brexit, although you, you still can't tell for sure, because even though I, I'm sure you're right that the, um, the the new conservative parliament, you know, soon will ratify the deal that uh, Johnson already negotiated with the EU and that formally that means Brexit will happen on January 31st. I think that's all inevitable now. But the formal Brexit that actually happens on January 31st under that deal doesn't really change the status quo until the end of 2020, right? So, so formally, England, the UK leaves the EU on, on January 31st, but you still have free movement of people, free movement of goods, free movement of labor, all EU regulations uh, fully applying uh, in the UK throughout the entire 2020 calendar year uh, under, that, under that deal. And so the concept there is that um, during the year, Johnson's supposed to negotiate um, new agreements with the EU, but the status quo doesn't immediately change. Um, I think that still leaves a lot of play in the joints about what 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 the uh, post twenty twenty world is going to look like. I think formally, certainly, the UK is going to be out of the EU. But I mean, as he's a got practical five matter, years now. It's not like he's got to go back up for an election. No, but but he may not want to move full speed ahead on the 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 kind of um, you know. Some of the Brexit voters who are really thinking like we need a hard Brexit, we need a we need to not have any more free movement of goods, free movement of people, free free uh, free movement of labor. We need to we need to start tariffing all the EU goods. I'm I'm just not sure that's Johnson's agenda. You know, I, I think Johnson, I see him as more opportunistic, and that this was a political issue, 
that he he proved to have very good political instincts on. He was able to ride it uh, straight into power, and actually he was able to cleave apart um, uh, different parts of what had been the labor coalition mm-hmm. and and leave them in tatters. You know, and I I think his perspective was based on British electoral politics and not on any kind of um, deep seated ideological commitment to Brexit. He hadn't even always been a, a Brexiter, um, and so I, I I just see him looking for ways to minimize the damage because he's going to, if he really implements Brexit in the kind of way that a Nigel Farage would implement it, then, you know, by next year, my view would be, and I, I doubt that Johnson disagrees with me, that, that England will be in a, in the worst depression they've been in, 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 uh, in, in decades. Um, and so I, I don't think he's looking for that. So I think he's looking for ways to maintain the rhetoric of Brexit and the formalities of Brexit, but maybe to continue to harmonize as needed with the EU um, in order to get the um, trade agreements that he, he says he's hoping to get so that there can still be a fairly robust um, trade and exchange between the UK and the, and the EU. And so I think now the game has shifted from whether there's going to be a Brexit, there definitely is, um, to what uh, Brexit's going to look like and how, how, how significant uh, it's going to actually change things on the ground. I'll say one thing that surprised me a little bit on the news and maybe it's just because you're going to have an outcome. I did not expect to see the pound rise as quickly as it did uh, as the news continued to come out. You get a you get a spike when the exit polls happen, and then we get another spike on Friday uh, when it becomes official. And I'm not sure what that means, but I feel like there, I feel like there's something there, Ken, and I'm not I can't quite put my finger on it. Well, I think there's a, you know, the markets, uh, markets don't love uh, uncertainty. Um, so this gave some certainty. Um, but actually, I think it, it uh, um, I think the spike went up and came back down already. Oh, has I'm it come all for, the way back down since? Uh... Not, not, yeah, so the pound, it, it cost uh, um, $1.31 before the day before Election Day. It went up to costing $1.35 after the spike that you're talking about. And it's dropped halfway back down, so it costs a dollar thirty-three now. Um, but my my sense of what the the increase was um, uh, all about is that markets um, like certainty and they don't like uncertainty. So the fact that Johnson got this huge victory and that all the turmoil and trauma over whether Brexit's going to happen or not, I think, kind of got dispelled by that. And whether Brexit's a good thing or not, there's some certainty that it's going to happen. Um, so that I think the markets like the certainty. But but what the markets haven't had to grapple with yet is um, the impact because the 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 impact as I said it's it's delayed by a whole year the 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 the, the agreement that he made that he's going to ask the Tories to vote for doesn't actually implement anything um, uh, until December thirty first of twenty twenty so I, I think the the markets you know they like certainty and there's no negative impacts being felt yet or for some time. Well, I guess what this means is once again, when we come back around in January, will be the perfect time to be talking about Brexit in January. Yeah. Well, can I actually, can I say one more thing about because another oh, part of your do. question? Finish yeah. off, finish another, off. Another part of your question I didn't address was um, about what this would mean for U.S. politics, and uh, I certainly don't want to be Pollyanna-ish about it. I, I think um, you know we've seen before that um, what happens in England can precede what happens here. Uh, Thatcher got elected and then Reagan got elected, you know, that, that, um, you know, that, that, that I don't want to, I don't want to um, under, under, I don't want to just ignore the potentialities, but, but I also think that um, what, what Johnson managed to pull off um, was he managed to cleave apart 
um, two constituencies that had been united in the Labour Party, which is, um, you know, sort of the original constituency of labor, um, non-college educated working people who worked, uh, you know, particularly in northern England and in Wales um, at, at what we would think of as blue collar jobs. And in England, these people were highly likely to be labor union members. And so they quite literally were labor's constituency. Um, but they were in uh, a political party with um, a lot of uh, um, urban urban professionals of, of a liberal uh, bent. And um, I think the, the Brexit issue really cleaved that. And uh, he, he got the the, the non-urban part of the labor coalition, the, the, the blue collar part to, to get all caught up in nationalism and patriotism. And ultimately that uh, um, severed them from the labor party. Um, but I don't think, I don't think that, it, that they turned away from um, other liberal policies. And in fact, if anything, Johnson turned towards them. So that a lot of the other thing that Johnson did is he's promising, you know, not to cut the national health service, but to spend more than ever on the national health service. Um, not to cut spending on, edu- on, on education, but to spend more than ever on education. So he was co-opting a lot of um, uh, labor's um, traditional agenda on taxing and spending. He wasn't um, really offering a conservative um, uh, counterproposal there. And so I think I think I think the the policies that um, have have made uh, labor um, a major party in in the in past decades are still popular policies in in the uh, UK. I think there's still popular policies in, in the U.S. And I, I do think that a lot of this result was unique to the, um, the Brexit uh, 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 debate and, and to people just really wanting to get it done. And, and Johnson sort of persuading them that Brexit was the right way to go and that he was actually going to deliver it and that the, you know, none of the other parties were, uh, rather than related to um, a lot of the other issues that might divide out on a liberal conservative axis. The only thing I'll add to that, Ken, is I will say uh, I don't disagree about the Boris co-opting, but I think you can make comparable arguments uh, to Trump and the Democratic Party, although I'm not sure if he's been nearly as successful as uh, as Johnson. And I do think it is oftentimes dangerous, although you're right, uh, to suggest that the United Kingdom uh, uh, and uh, British elections can often have an impact on uh, or be a foreshadow of American elections. But what I do want to let everybody know, and this is kind of cool, is is that this week, as we close out the show today, uh, Mike will be doing our quick take, and he's going to be doing it on uh, the IG report himself. But here's the big news. It's going to be free. That's right. Normally, if you want to listen to the quick take, or if you wanted to enjoy Mike's take, uh, he's, he's responding to uh, myself and Ken this week. Uh, you'd actually have to be a donor. But this week and this week only, we are offering Mike's quick take uh, for free, even if you aren't a supporter. Uh, and so I ask that you uh, listen into that. Uh, it will be available to you already as you're listening to this. Uh, Mike's quick take on the IG report, responding a little bit to myself and to Ken. Also this week, and this is as always, if you are a supporter, uh, Ken and I are recording a bonus show in just a few mere moments. Uh, about the lawsuit over the ACT and the SAT in California, uh, plus talking a little bit about Time Magazine's Person of the Year. Uh, And that show should be in your podcast app by the time you hear this. Uh, That's just one of the many supporters-only things we've got for you. So to become a supporter or to find out more, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash politicsguys or you can go to politicsguys.com 
slash support. If you've got questions, comments, a correction, or just some random thought you want to share, uh, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. You can also hit us up on our Facebook page where you can message us uh, at facebook.com slash politicsguys page. Additionally, we're now on Reddit in a little bit more of a controlled environment to try to have some really rational, sane conversations uh, that just don't go down the social media rabbit hole. Uh, and so we would love for you uh, to join us on that moderated form on Reddit. We're also on Twitter at Politics Guys. Subscribing to the show really helps, as does sharing episodes. Word of mouth is the best advertising, and we'd greatly appreciate it if you'd leave reviews, ratings on whatever podcast app you use. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilmer Morano, Andra Masker, and Daniel Toe. Today's show was produced by me, Trey Orndorff. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us then.